your presence and to hear your voice speaking to us as we listen and process. Thank you, God. We love you. Amen. You guys can have a seat. This past Tuesday, I attended the first meeting of the year of the Beverly Resource Group. Now, this is a group of people that uh, gather once a month to talk about what's going on in the community. And it's all nonprofit organizations. There are probably a dozen people there. We met at the Beverly Children's Learning Center over on Cabot Street. And this was the first time that I had gone. The guy that's the pastor of Garden City Church down the street invited me to go. And so I was excited just to connect with some people and find out what was going on. Lo and behold, there is way more going on in Beverly than I expected and that I knew about. I couldn't believe all the organizations that were there and what they were doing. There was the YMCA talking about all the summer programs they're going to run for kids this year, Girl Scouts of America and the different camps that they have, apparently like a world-renowned sailing camp in Massachusetts that people travel from all over the country and the world to attend, all kinds of different opportunities, uh, Affordable Housing Association, um, the NSCAP, which gives funding for people that uh, need help paying their fuel bills. Uh, There was a woman from Endicott College there who was just in charge of all of their volunteer organizations and just helping students get connected to different organizations that they can volunteer at. One event really stuck out to me, though. It's Donuts with Dad. It's at the Topsfield Library the first Saturday of every month. So I'm sorry you won't be able to go this coming month because you'll be at World Mandate. But in March, you can go if you're a dad or an uncle or you just have a little kid with you, apparently. It's at 1030 to 1130, free donuts. You can bring your kids, okay? So all of this is just to say, hey, uh, you know, here at the Harbor, we love our community and we want to get more involved, and that's part of the reason I was there. But it raised the question in my mind of like, man, there's so much going on that I didn't know that I just had available to me because I live in this area, because I'm a citizen of this country and I live in this city called Beverly. There's a lot that's available. If I, if I have fuel trouble, I can call the NSCAP, which I don't know what that stands for, but I know I could probably Google it and find out, right? I know if my kids are wanting to go to summer camp, I can look to the Y, I can, you know, Girl Scouts. It's a few years down the road for my daughter, but, right? There's so many, there's so many opportunities and places for help. That made me think about this series that we're currently in called Intimacy, Identity, and Authority. This past three weeks, we've been talking about intimacy with God, just knowing God, that that's really the the focus of of our whole life, our whole existence, is getting to know God. And that by breaking down some of the walls of these false images we have of God and really believing that he's good is really the pathway to being able to get to know God. And then walking through kind of that door of God's goodness, we believe in Jesus, we start loving other people, and we just, we just talk to God. We pray. That's how we get to know God. It's actually really simple. Last week, we talked about identity in Jesus. And if I was going to summarize that big topic, if you've been in the church a long time, it's kind of a big thing. Oh, identity in Christ, you know, what does that mean? All that is just to say, if you're not familiar with church, when we put our faith in Jesus, what happens to us? Who, who does God say that we are? And there's two things from the book of 1 John, which we were studying before, that I would say in summary. The Bible says that we are children, dearly loved children of God. And number two, it says in 1 John 4, 
As Jesus is, so are we in this world. That is who we are. We're children of God who represent and are even little Christs. That's what the word Christians mean. So if you want to know what it means, you know, who you are, what your identity in Christ is, think about those two things, what the ramifications are of that. So great, all this stuff, okay, I can know God and I can, you know, know who I am, but what difference does that mean for me in my actual life? Knowing God, knowing who I am, so what? I mean, what kind of an effect does that have on my life? And what is available to me? What is available to me as a member of God's family? Right, just like I'm a citizen in this country, I'm a resident in this area, so what is available to me if I'm a member of God's family? So to answer that question, we're going to turn to the book of Titus. It's a tiny little book towards the end of the Bible, written by the Apostle or St. Paul. And we're going to look at chapter 2. Now as you're turning there, I'll just mention, Titus. one of the big themes of Titus is good works. If you read through the book, it's, it's, he's talking all about Paul as he's writing to this young leader who's putting elders in place of all these little house churches in the area that Titus is. Uh, all about doing good. Okay, But this chapter particularly has the theme, and I want to read this and see if you can pick up on something that is repeated over and over again. Okay? Who's ready? Okay. All right. Pay attention. There will be a quiz. Which is the rest of your life. Okay, no pressure. All right. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be of good a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. All right, anybody pick up on the theme that I'm, there's a number of things you could probably hear that were repeated in there, but any thoughts? You got it, man. First guess, come on. 500 points for Ben to be awarded, okay? How does being a Christian change your life? What do you have access to, given that you've said yes to following Jesus? What's available to you as someone in the family of God. Well, this might not sound all that sexy or exciting, 
but it's self-control. See, the truth of the Bible is this. You can control yourself. Why don't you say that right now with me? I can control myself. That may sound simple, but that is a profound reality in the kingdom of God. And it is absolutely 100% life-changing. You can control yourself. You have authority first and foremost over yourself. You cannot control anyone else. And no one else can control you. And God will not do that either. He may have the ability to, but he will not control you or manipulate you. Now, this chapter that I read, I would say maybe is the self-control chapter in the Bible. Four times that word is repeated. And the kind of the breadth of the application is, is quite striking, right? Everyone's commanded in this chapter to be self-controlled. The, the bond servants, it actually doesn't target them specifically, but everyone else in the chapter, it says. It says, older men are encouraged to be da-da-da-da, self-controlled. Older women... It doesn't actually say they're supposed to be self-controlled, but they're supposed to teach self-control to the younger women. Okay? And then the only thing that Paul tells Titus concerning young men is to urge them to be self-controlled. Apparently, if the young men can just get some self-control, Paul's going to be pretty psyched about that. Right? It's just like, okay, guys, if there's one thing you need, just get some self-control, everything will be all right. Okay? Apparently, the women and the older men can handle a little more. And then he also, he also actually lists self-control in the first chapter as an attribute that uh, elders are to have as, as Titus is appointing them over these house churches. You can control yourself. This is the urge from the Bible is to live a life that is self-controlled. Where you have authority over yourself. That you are making choices, right, in your life and not passing them off to somebody else or blaming someone else for what's happening to you. I took a dive into a book called Keep Your Love On, which I would highly recommend. talks a lot about uh, self-control, relationships, communication. It's by a guy named Danny Silk from Bethel Church. And in this book, he compares two types of people, powerless people and powerful people. Here's how he describes powerless people. Powerless people are victims. They don't want to take responsibility for their own lives. They blame others for where they find themselves in life. They frequently say, I can't or I'll try. They can't control themselves, and so they try to control other people. They often talk about how hard their life is. And they feel sorry for themselves. They throw lots of pity parties. They want someone else to rescue them or feel bad for them. Life itself is happening to them. They often want to quit and they give up easily. And they don't have boundaries because they don't value themselves or other people. Now, this isn't 100% black and white. So maybe just a piece of that might have struck you. There was a lot of pieces in there that strike me. Here's what he says about powerful people. I took this off of his blog. Eight statements, and then I'll round it out with some other things from the book. 
Powerful people, they do not try to control other people. That's number one. Two, they create a respectful environment. In other words, they don't tolerate disrespect. And if someone is disrespecting me, they're not allowing them kind of into their zone to be an influencer in their life. Number three, they refuse to be a victim. Number four, they require others around them to be powerful, meaning they're not going to be a rescuer in some kind of a manipulative, you know, triangulation uh, relationship. So they're going to ask people questions like, well, what are you going to do about that? They make daily decisions that align with their vision. So they're focused. They're making powerful choices that, that lead into their calling in life. They let their yes be yes and no, no. So they're telling the truth. They love unconditionally. And they consistently demonstrate who they say they are. There's an amazing contrast there, right? But a powerful person, when it all boils down, is someone that knows that they can control themselves. They value themselves enough to set boundaries, right? They are happening to life. They rise to a challenge. They have a positive feeling about every day. They're looking forward to their lives and the opportunities that are presenting themselves to them. And they make powerful choices. And they focus on what they can control, which is really only themselves, right? Yesterday, I was at the table with Sam during tea time, and he was, as he frequently does, leaning onto the table, which often leads to him knocking something over. And he knows he's not supposed to do this, but he's a kid. And I I made the comment to him, you're making me feel nervous. And I caught myself because, uh, in actuality, no one can actually make you feel anything either. The proper way to say that would have been, I am feeling nervous about what you are doing. Take this example, if you're not buying this, so that people can't make you feel something. All right, so you're driving along, okay? You're driving down 1A, and you're going past, you know, the, the Bertucci's, Starbucks, that little plaza right there, okay? It's a Dodge Street Plaza or something. And you're driving along, and you see this, uh, this, this white Honda Accord start to edge out. Like they've been sitting there a long time, and you know, you've been in that position, trying to make a left-hand turn. And so you're driving past them, and you, and you just think, oh, you know, I'll help this person out. So you kind of slow down, and you look at the person, you go, hey, you know, you wave them on. And so they pull out and kind of give you that little, you know, that token wave, and you, you drive on by. You feel, ah, oh, you feel pretty good about that. The next day, you're doing the exact same thing. You're driving down the road, and a black Lexus pulls out and is edging his way into the thing. And you go, oh, what the heck? This guy's cutting me off. I'm going to And so you speed up, swerve around him, and curse that moron as you drive by. Right? Now, that was the exact same thing. But, but you felt something totally different in those two scenarios. Even though the same, it was the same exact situation. This is not to say that feelings are wrong. They are not wrong. Jesus got angry, right? Jesus weeps. He's sad, okay? So feelings are legitimate. But to say that someone is forcing that on you, is, I don't think is entirely accurate. Powerful people own their actions and their emotions. 
They use the language of this is what I am feeling. You know those I statements that, you know, any communication class you had about relationships, whatever, said, use these statements called I feel, da, 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 so you're not blaming somebody else, right? The, the point is this. Even the language that we use oftentimes is shifting, shifting something onto other people, whereas we need to be the ones that own ourselves. Everything that we are responsible for, God is calling us to do that. I think this was a bumper sticker at one point in time. I could be wrong. But it said something like, if God is your co-pilot, switch seats. That is wrong. That is 100% wrong. God is not going to drive the car of your life. Now, if Jesus is in the back seat, he's not going to be a backseat driver. You should invite him into the front seat. Right? Jesus is your co-pilot. That is the truth. He is not going to take the wheel. He wants you to be a responsible person and make powerful choices in your life of which he will help you make as your co-pilot when you are asking him for advice and help and direction. He's not one to butt in and manipulate. Guys, you can control yourself. God is not going to control you. He's not just, God, just take over, you know, just, just do it. God's saying, no, I want you to grow up and make good choices. Just like every parent wants for their kids. Right? You can control yourself. Powerful people make decisions, make choices, and they know what they're about. They own their own actions. They own their emotions. Right? And they don't shift it onto somebody else. All right. So maybe you're thinking... This sounds like pie in the sky, right? Self-control. I can control myself. Maybe you've lived a few years and you realize, man, oftentimes I am out of control. I cannot control myself. Can this really be true? Does being a God's family actually have a bearing on my ability to control myself? Well, I tried to read with a little bit of enthusiasm the last paragraph of this chapter It's an amazing and beautiful explanation of what Jesus provided for us. I'm going to read it one more time. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ah. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, right, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, who are able to do good works because they're living lives of self-control. Right now, Paul says the grace of God here is what has appeared. Now, if you went to Awana Club's you know the definition of grace? Yeah, that's one. Okay, or a free gift that we don't deserve. Okay, that's the one I remember. Man, there's probably two of them. Okay. Right, a lot of people know. Okay, it's a free gift. But there's other definitions of that word from the Greek. It's favor or goodwill. Okay, it's the goodwill of God that's appeared. What's appeared? Jesus. Jesus is just the manifestation 
in his own person of his favor, in becoming a person and entering the darkness of this world. Right? It's appeared. Jesus appeared, bringing salvation for all people through his death so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Right? And this grace trains us, it says. Right? The grace of God is also the power to obey. It's not just, here's a ticket to get into heaven. It is, here is power to live powerfully on this earth. It's power. Grace is power to obey. Right? It's the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it's able to teach and train us two things. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Right? Running after the things that aren't good for us and don't satisfy. And then to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Okay? This is the message of the gospel. We have all made really bad choices in our life. They've hurt ourselves. They've hurt people around us. They've hurt God. They've hurt the planet and the systems of this world. Everything's been wounded by our poor choices. There's brokenness all around us. But God made a loving, powerful choice to become a person, the person of Jesus, and to enter into the darkness, the hurt, the pain of this world, right? And to redeem it. And so what did we do? We responded by killing Jesus. The person, that, the only person that lived a perfectly self-controlled life. A life of perfect love showing us the heart of the Father God in heaven. He didn't resist the evil person, but took all that evil that we could muster and brought it into death with him. But God vindicated him and raised him from the dead to show that he was the Son of God and to let him be the firstfruits among many, meaning the, the, the seed of a new creation, a new people of God that would live self-controlled lives of love for other people and making powerful choices that are aligning with who they are and their own calling. And that allow them to have healthy relationships with other people. And so Jesus' death, it's a sacrifice for our sin. We're removed from a place of judgment, under being under judgment, to forgiveness of sin. But not only that, but we are set free from the power of sin in our lives. Right? This is what Paul is saying to Titus. Right? The grace of God has appeared, teaching us to get rid of this junk and to walk in self-control, right? to live godly, just lives. So we have the power to choose. Interestingly enough, even Cain, you know that guy, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve's firstborn Cain, right? He should have been the man, firstborn son of like everything. Like the firstborn of all the firstborn sons. Adam wasn't born. He had, did he have a belly button? Nobody knows. Okay? Cain has this deal with his brother Abel. Abel offers his sacrifices of his animals because he's a, he's, a, you know, he's a herder, shepherd guy. Cain likes to work the field. He brings these. Somehow Cain's is not acceptable. Abel's is acceptable. And it says Cain was downcast. He's discouraged. This is what God says to him. It's incredible. The Lord said to Cain, why are, you, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do 
well. Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, is God just messing with Cain here? He's saying, Cain, I know what you're going to do. You're going to screw up. But you know what? I'll just, I'll just give this to you and say, you know, if you do well, Cain, it'll, it'll be good. But if you do bad, it'll be this. But I know you're going to screw it up, Cain. Is that what you feel? Apart from, the, you know, the sovereignty of God and all this stuff you know about what God is supposed to be like, is that what the passage says? Absolutely not. God came to Cain and he said, Cain, I want to encourage you. You can do this. If you do well, you'll be accepted. He has a choice, right? Now, this last little phrase, but you must rule over it, talking about sin. Most translations render it this way. I'm reading from the ESV. It says you must rule over it. In other words, it's kind of like you have to do this, Cain. The King James Version went a different direction with this. It says it's a future verb. It says thou shalt rule over him, meaning it's like a, it's like a prediction, which is kind of funny because Cain didn't do that, right? One of my favorite novels of all time is East of Eden. It's written by John Steinbeck, and it's, uh, it takes place, I think, in the, in the early 1900s. And it's about this family, and it's a retelling of the story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And it, it, most of it happens in the, in the Salinas Valley in California. And this family has, is totally dysfunctional, like most families. And uh, there's this one section of the book where the two brothers, they're Aaron and Cal. Cal is kind of like representative of Cain, and Aaron is representative of Abel. And during the, the, the course of this book, somehow this passage comes up, this passage of Scripture, and there's this Chinese man that works for uh, Cain, sorry, Cal and, and Aaron's family. And he, he says this about this passage, this research that he does at this crucial moment in the, in the narrative. Sorry, it's a really long book. It's hard to summarize the whole thing, but hopefully I'm putting you in the picture here. Lee says this, Don't you see the American Standard Translation orders men to triumph over sin? In other words, that must idea. And you call sin ignorance. The King James Translation makes a promise in thou shalt, meaning that men will surely triumph over sin. But the Hebrew word, the word Tim shall, thou mayest, that gives a choice. It might be the most important word in the world. That says the way is open. He's speaking this to Cal who thinks that his life is cursed, that he's kind of gone the way of Cain and he has no chance to live rightly in his life. And he's speaking this in him and saying, we researched the Hebrew. This is what it means. Now, I don't know if that's actually accurate. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. That's what John Steinbeck did with it, okay? But the point, I think, is true. If Cain has the ability to choose, that's what God is saying to him. If you do well, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. We are people, and we have responsibility for our lives. God left the door open for Cain. How much more power do we have when we are filled with the Spirit because we've put our faith in Jesus? Guys, you can control yourself. You don't believe me? It says this, 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given you a spirit of fear that would lead you to control and manipulate other people. 
right, or run away from your own responsibilities, but of power to make powerful choices. Love, to love unconditionally, even when that means boundaries and self-control. God has given us a spirit that works in us self-control. And it's not a surprise that this is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Right? God is in us. Sorry, it's not fruits of the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit, singular. Correction. Okay? The Spirit of God is in us growing self-control. Say, I can control myself. Thank you. Let me make that entirely clear that that was your cue. All right. So what do you do with this? How do you increase in self-control? You're saying, man, that sounds too good to be true. I would love to have control over myself. I'd love to not go to that, that fix that I often find myself going to. Or, you know, running after this thing that I, that I sorry, that's so abstract. I think you know in your own life where you go when you don't want to go there. How do we move forward? The first step is actually believing that this is true that you are not a victim, and that the lie that the devil wants to tell you, that you can't control yourself, and you'll never get out of this pattern of life, and this vicious cycle that's been repeated in your family, you're going to be the same way. That's a lie. The Bible is saying that God has given you a spirit of power and self-control. When you put your faith in Jesus, you say yes to Jesus, he fills you with his spirit, and he's growing self-control in you. And you have the power to make choices in your life. You can control yourself. That is step one. And step two is actually to get on this cycle of intimacy, identity, and authority. Really, it's knowing God and knowing who we are that is going to lead us into this place of authority. It's a chain reaction. When we know God, he's always going to be speaking to us who he is and who we really are. And that is going to unlock in us the, the, the real ability to have control over ourselves or to realize, maybe I should say, the control that's already there because the Spirit of God is in us. We're not victims. We're not powerless. We have power. And the lie is that we are a victim and we are powerless. And that is from the devil. We can choose with our will to believe that. And the more and more we believe that, the more and more we know God, the more and more we are connected to him and we hear him speaking who we are through the Bible, right, our identity in Christ, the more we are going to be able to make powerful choices in our lives. You can control yourself. Let's have the band come back up. This is what we're going to do. I want you to think about a time in your life that you had a very positive, uh, a positive memory, okay? And particularly if it's one that is with, it was a, some kind of an encounter with Jesus, I want you just to kind of go to that memory in your mind, okay? If it would help you to close your eyes, it'd be great. I'm going to lead you on a couple other steps. So if you can, if you have a positive memory with God, that's great. If, you, if you've never encountered Jesus before, just if you were willing, would you just think about a positive memory uh, in your life.
want you to start uh, thinking about what, what did you, what did you uh, feel? What did you touch or feel? What were you feeling? What were you sitting on, standing in? Where were you? What, did you, what were physically around you? What were you hearing in that? What could you see? What could you hear? Maybe smell. I want you to ask Jesus, maybe it was an encounter with God, but I want you to ask him, if he wasn't in this memory, I want you to ask him, Jesus, where were you during this memory? As you're picturing Jesus, start to listen to maybe what he's saying or ask him, hey, Jesus, what's up? If this isn't working for you, here's the, here's the last question I want you to ask. So if you're already there, great. Stay there with that picture of Jesus in whatever way that you sense that you're connecting with him, even right now. Jesus, what do, you want, what do I need to know to live more self-controlled? Ask him that question. Hear what he says. I'm going to give you a few minutes to do this, and then I'll call us back together, and we'll sing.